Good morning. Welcome to See Me Church Online. I also want to welcome our friends at the Shoreline Church who are joining with us today. As you can see behind me, due to the coronavirus crisis, we have opted not to meet physically for worship, but instead we've opted to meet online virtually for our worship time. Now, even though we're not here together in person, you can still participate by leaving your encouragements and feedback in the comments section below on YouTube. I also ask that during this time, this crisis, that you stay connected with each other in fellowship. And you can do that in a lot of creative ways, whether that's online or in small groups or one-on-one. -on -one. But we do want to maintain our connection to one another as a fellowship. And I also want to encourage you to think of the people in your oikos and ways in which you can invite them into this interesting format that we're turning to in this very interesting time. You can do that easily by sharing the link to the YouTube channel with your friends and your families and your neighbors. And maybe, who knows, God will uh, increase the number of people who join us, whether it's in person or online, and we can see his name glorified and his word proclaimed to more and more people. That said, I did start a series last Sunday uh, entitled one-on-one -on -one with Jesus. And in that first lesson, we looked at a, a, a number, a few encounters between Jesus and his early disciples. And we learned a number of things about each of them in doing so. Today, I'm going to keep going on with that series, and we're going to be focusing on a one-on-one -on -one encounter between Jesus and his mother, Mary. Now think about that for a minute. We actually have a few, but they are recorded encounters between Jesus and the people that were most intimate, most close to him, including his own mom. I think just highlighting this as a one-on-one -on -one between him and his mom is going to make this lesson that much more special. Now, as always, our goal is to draw out something relevant to our faith into our life today. So I have a little bit of a joke for you. Have you ever heard the one about the Lone Ranger and Tonto? Well, the Lone Ranger and Tonto were out one day on the range and they found themselves surrounded by a group of hostile Indians. It was a large group, they were outnumbered and things were looking very bad for the two of them. The Lone Ranger turned to Tonto and he said, Tonto, I think we're in a lot of trouble here. Tonto looked back at the Lone Ranger and he said, what do you mean we, white man? You know, as we go into our lesson today, we're going to see that like Tonto, Jesus is going to draw a distinction between himself and his mother, between what was important to him and his priorities, priorities and what was important to her. But before we do that, let's turn to John chapter 2 and we're going to say a prayer. Father, thank you so much for bringing us together this morning. I pray that the church online is edified by the lesson. I pray that people are encouraged by your word, that we have a great time gathering here together today in this new format, and that, God, your word is preached and people are encouraged. We thank you for bringing us together and allowing us to do this. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me to John chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1. 
On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana at Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Well, we left off last week with Jesus meeting his first few disciples. They were down in an area known as Perea. It was kind of in, in what we would call today uh, the southern part of Palestine, near the Jordan River. And there Jesus began to acquire his first followers. From there, they made a decision to travel back up north into the region of Galilee, which would have been, which is what we would call today northern Palestine. And along the way, they stopped in a small village called Cana to attend a wedding. Apparently, they had been invited to a wedding along with Jesus' mother, who was also there attending the wedding. Now, weddings in the first century, like today, were often large and festive celebrations. But like today, they were not without drama. I remember my wedding back in 1994, and we had drama. The drama, there was a number of things, but one of the big dramas that broke out at my wedding was that as Lynette and I, my wife, were planning to leave for our honeymoon, we could not find Lynette's overnight bag. And that was a very important thing to have when we were heading out for our honeymoon. And we eventually figured out that it was locked in a car and the person who owned the car had left the wedding with the keys. And so we were unable to leave when we wanted to leave. We eventually got it worked out, but I'll tell you, those few minutes were very drama filled. You know, in the Bible, we do see a couple of examples of weddings that kind of paint a picture for us what they were like in the first century in the ancient Near East. And in addition to being large and festive, they each had drama of their own. And I just want to share two of them with you. The first one is found in, recorded in Genesis chapter 29. We're just going to read a part of it and I'll explain the rest. In verse 22, it says, So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. When evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. Jacob made love to her, and Laban gave his servant Zilpha to his daughter and her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is it you've done to me? I have served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Pretty spicy stuff here. But Jacob was working for a man named Laban, and he had fallen in love with Laban's younger daughter, Rachel. And he asked to marry her, and Laban agreed. But on their wedding night, Laban switched the brides. And so when, Jake, when Jacob woke up in the morning, he found Rachel's older sister Leah lying in bed next to him. Surprised, he went to Laban and said, what have you done? And Laban said, well, it's in my, my family, in my custom, we believe that the oldest daughter should be married before the youngest daughter. And so I switched out the bride on your wedding night. But don't worry, you can have Rachel as well, but you have to promise to work for me for another seven years. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, how is this possible? How is it even possible that Laban could have switched the brides out on the wedding night? Well, my answer would be that it was nothing some strong wine and a very dark tent couldn't explain. The next wedding that I want to talk about that I find humorous uh, but does paint a picture of what weddings were like in the ancient Near East, is found in 2 Judges chapter 14. Again, I'm just going to read a section, and then I'll explain to you the rest. In verse 16, it says, And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. Do you only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people, and you have not told me 
what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother, and shall I tell you? She wept before him in the seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her, because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. He went down to Ashkelon, struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of everything, and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he returned to his father's home, and Samson's wife was given to one of his companions who had attended him at the feast. So in this second example of weddings in the ancient Near East, we see that there was a lot of feasting. In fact, a wedding went on for about seven days. And during that time, quite a bit of drama broke out. You see, Samson had fallen in young love with a young Philistine woman. And so as he and his entourage came to the village where she was from and made plans for the big wedding day, a, a week-long festival occurred. There was feasting, there was drinking, there was games. And one of the games was Samson proposed a riddle to his future in-laws. And the deal was if they could solve the riddle, he would give them 30 sets of new clothes. But if they couldn't solve the riddle, they would give him 30 sets of new clothes. Apparently, Samson did not understand who his soon-to-be in-laws were. And so they began to press his bride-to-be to find the answer to the riddle. Well, on the very last day, the, just before Samson and this young Philistine girl would have gone into the tent and, and, and consummated the marriage, she finally gets Samson to fess up what happened, and she goes and tells her people. And so they come to him, and they solve the riddle. Well, enraged, Samson kills 30 of their men. He calls the wedding off, and the bride goes home with one of the groomsmen. Now, don't tell me that the Bible is boring. All you have to do is peel back a layer or two, and you're going to find some pretty spicy stuff. But in both of these accounts, we do learn a few important things about marriage ceremonies in the ancient Near East. One, they were long celebrations. They tended to last about a week. Two, they involved a lot of eating and drinking. And three, there was often a lot of drama. Now, fortunately for our couple in Cana, there was no switching of brides or killings, but their wedding did have some drama. We read about it in verse 3. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Now, apparently the drama at this wedding was that they were about to run out of wine. And believe it or not, this was a big deal. You see, in the Near East at this time, the host family was actually legally obliged to provide an appropriate ceremony. That would include gifts and food, and it would need to last the entire week-long celebration. And in fact, if the host family failed to provide that kind of a celebration, legal recourse could be taken against them. Now, fortunately, in this case, Mary had apparently been asked to be in charge of the caterers. And she was the one of the first to discover that the wine was running out. And not wanting to avoid any, not wanting to cause any more, any, have any drama or any crisis, she turned to her son and she asked him for his help. 
But she doesn't really ask, does she? Instead, she just simply says, they have no more wine. You know, my favorite thing about this interaction between Mary and Jesus is it's a picture of the way sons and, and, and mothers often talk to each other. I mean, it's so much like how I and my mom interact with each other. Mary is unclear and indirect. In response, Jesus is blunt and to the point. I mean, if this was an interaction between me and my mom, it would probably go something like this. My mom would say, Joe, you know they're out of wine. We really need to do something. And I would say, oh, lady, what do you mean we? Just like Tonto did with the Lone Ranger. Now, I can't be sure, but it seems to me that Mary was asking Jesus to actually perform a miracle and that she didn't think it was a big deal if he did so. But what I do know is that Jesus clearly disagreed with her. He did not want to draw attention to himself at this time. And so in this interaction, by calling her woman and telling her, telling her his time had not yet come, he really is making a clear distinction between himself and her, between what mattered to him and his priorities and what mattered to her. Her priorities were to, were to, were to head off this crisis at this wedding, to, 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 to reduce the drama. His priority was to do the will of the Father in the time of the will, uh, in the time of the Father. You know, when Jesus was a young child, his priorities were to obey his mother and his father, Joseph. But as he became an adult, there was a change that occurred and his priorities switched from them to his father in heaven. And we see that this is the relational dynamic. This relational dynamic is being played out here in this interaction between Jesus and his mom. Let me ask you a question. What matters to you? Is it God's will or is it the will of all the people around you? What, who are you trying to serve? Verse 5, he said to the servants, do, uh, Mary, his mother, said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. You know, when you read this account, it looks as if Jesus gives in to his mother's request. In fact, Catholic scholars and others have had a hard time with this passage because they interpret it based on their exaggerated view of Mary and of her importance. You see, they see that Mary is actually exerting influence over Jesus and prompting him to do her bidding. When in fact, I believe the story is uh, uh, the interpretation exactly the, the reverse of that. It really is Jesus telling his mother, listen, I'm not subject to your authority anymore. I'm now subject to the will and authority of my Father in heaven. I think we see that when he calls her woman and he tells her that his hour has not yet come. And so if that's true, then Mary's response here is actually not to overrule Jesus or to usurp his authority. It's actually very humble. She turns to the servants and she says, do whatever he tells you. In other words, it's in his hands. Whatever, however he responds, whatever he chooses to do, that is totally up to him. I mean, she doesn't get offended. She doesn't argue. She doesn't plead. She just simply gives the matter over to Jesus for him to do as he sees fit. 
I think this is really a great example of Mary accepting the change in their relationship and putting her trust in him. You know, many of you know that in the last six months, uh, you know, I've been going through kind of a difficult time. We've had some leadership uncertainties with our family of churches here in what we call the North region of the LA church. Our senior evangelist retired, and that's kind of left a vacuum and a question. How do we want to go forward? And there's debate. Some feel like, hey, this is a chance for great collaboration. Others feel like uh, this is an opportunity to establish a more centralized authority and would like to see a new senior evangelist appointed. I have my opinions, and I've made my opinions known but what I found hard to do is to just hand them over to Jesus and be okay with whatever the result may be. It's hard sometimes to let God or to let go and to let God. And that's what I see happening here in Mary and the relationship between her and Jesus. She's learning to let go and to let God. Maybe you're going through a difficult time or will at some point in the future, have a similar crisis happen in your life. And you're going to be faced with the same challenge to, to wanting to get your opinion and your, your result uh, heard or at least, uh, at least heard or, or actually acted on. But you may have to, at some point, let go and let God. You know, I appreciate all of you that have been praying for me. I have been working on it. I have been praying about it. And I'm getting there. But the fact is we live in a plurality of relationships. We've got personal relationships. We've got communal relationships. We, we're involved in civil relationships uh, as, as citizens of this country. And that means that even with, with all of our various opinions thrown in the mix, that not everybody's opinion is going to carry the day. And, one of you, and, 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 and at times, your opinion is not going to carry the day. The question is, will you, like Mary, let go and let God? Verse 6, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn out knew. And he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the deeper, cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. You know, it's funny, but even though Jesus made his priorities known and, and reordered the relationship between himself and Mary, not wanting, uh, because he didn't want to risk being overexposed, he decided to help anyways. But he does so in a very interesting way. First, he instructs the servants to fill six water pots to the brim with water. And then he tells them to serve it to the guests, starting with the master of the banquet. Now, according to John, the servants obey. There was no hesitation. There was no word of protest. Now, I doubt very much that anyone, including Mary and the disciples and the servants, knew what Jesus was going to do. Least of all, the guests at the wedding. I got to imagine what the servants may have been feeling. You know, 
sort of the backstory here is that those water pots were not wine pots, they were water pots. And that water was most likely used for washings before meals. And so the water that was normally in those pots was probably not the best quality water. It was, may not have been really drinking water. And so when the servants filled that up, and then Jesus told them to go ahead and serve that, I think there was a bit hesitation on their part. Are you kidding me? You're going to ask us to go hand this, this water out to people? It's not even really fit for drinking. And they're expecting wine. I mean, maybe some of the servants were thinking about Samson's wedding and worried that they were going to end up dead after this wedding. I don't know. But the point is, the servants obeyed. Now, as soon as the master of the banquet tasted the liquid, he realized that it was the best wine he had ever had, and he immediately congratulates the groom and the groom's family on their kindness, this extraordinary kindness of presenting such great quality drink at this point in the week-long celebration. Now, the groom, like all grooms, had no idea what he was talking about, and that's just what happens to grooms on their wedding day. But the crisis was averted. But it wouldn't have happened if the servants hadn't simply obeyed. You know, as I go through my own wrestlings with where we're headed as a family of churches and what may or may not transpire, and it's going to be fine, I know, but as I go through that and as you wrestle with whatever's in your life that's causing any kind of discomfort or upset and, and, the, and the results are kind of unclear, or we all go through this COVID-19, this coronavirus crisis, and we don't know where this is going to head or what the outcome's going to be, I'm reminded by these servants that in addition to making my requests known and praying through it and putting my priorities onto God, the first thing I need to really do is obey. That it really is just about obeying Jesus through whatever challenges of life may come. And we leave the miracles up to him. Verse 11. What Jesus did in Canaan of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So John ends this little account, this interaction between Jesus and his mother, and he says that what Jesus did here was a sign through which he revealed his glory. But the truth is, his glory was not revealed to everyone. I mean, think about it. Jesus didn't go to much trouble to perform this miracle. He didn't wave he didn't make a big show. He didn't wave his hands over the pots. He didn't loudly proclaim water, turn into wine. He did none of that. As a matter of fact, he never even touched the pots or the water or the cups. And in doing so, he honored both his mother's request to sort of save the day for this family and protect their reputation and his father in heaven's request to not draw undue attention to himself at this time. And I think that was just as much of a miracle as it was to turn water into wine. I mean, think about it. He turned water into wine at a banquet and almost no one knew he had done it. Pretty amazing that Jesus was able to find or to strike that balance. 
Now, I don't know at what point the water actually turned into wine. Was it in the jar? Was it in the cup? Was it in their mouth? I mean, I don't know when that actually happened. But the fact is, the miracle happened. Liberal theologians, they read this passage and they, they dismiss it as fiction. As a matter of fact, when they read it, they interpret the master of the banquet's comment, this is the best wine yet, as being sarcastic. In other words, they think what, what actually happened was that they actually did serve that dirty water. The master of the banquet tasted it and very sarcastically said, hey, this is the best wine yet. And what happened over time is that turned into a myth, which then turned into a miracle story. They just don't see Jesus' glory being revealed. I'm not even sure that in all the drama surrounding, the run out of the, the, surrounding this, this event, the running out of wine, that almost anybody was able to see Jesus' glory being revealed. I don't even know. I think if we were to interview the servants afterwards, I think they might have said, hey, I don't know what happened there, but that was pretty great. Saved our necks. I mean, I don't know. But this brings me to the thing I want to leave you with today. Miracles aren't always accompanied by grand gestures and bold pronouncements for everyone to see. Often, they're done quietly, almost as if in secret, and only a few people even notice they happen. I want to be one of those people. I want to see Jesus doing miracles today because I believe he still does. But I got to be willing to put my priorities where he put his priorities. I got to be willing to obey even when I don't know what the outcome is. I've got to be willing to let go and let God. I don't know how long this coronavirus crisis is going to last or what crisis may come around the corner, but I do know this. If we do those things, we will see His glory revealed. Let's pray. Father, I thank You so much for this time. I pray that the message went out, that it was well received, that wherever it's being heard, people are encouraged and brought to greater faith and appreciation in You. I do pray for those who are affected by this crisis. I pray that you heal those that are sick, that this crisis passes quickly, that there's very little financial burden placed on anyone or undue burden, and that, God, we can get back to normal functioning as soon as possible. But, God, even if it lasts longer than expected, help us to let go and let you. Help us to be obedient and help us to see miracles happening. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You know, we want Simi Church to be your church, your family's church, and your neighbor's church. If you'd like to know more, you can message me in the comments section below, or you can go to our website, simichurch.org, or you can email me directly at joe at simichurch.org. If that's not something you're prepared to do, that's okay. Just keep coming back. We're going to be here next Sunday and the Sunday after that for sure. Going forward, I don't know what's going to happen after that. But I want to thank you for joining us today and being a part of this time together. I do ask 
for the members of See Me and Shoreline Church that you make sure you take time today to take communion and to pray. You can do that by picking up some grape juice at the store, some matzah bread, and setting aside a half an hour or so just to commune with God, to pray to Him, and remember the death, burial, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for being with us today. I'll see you next Sunday. If you've been walking the same old road for miles and miles If you've been hearing the same old voice tell the same old lies If you're trying to feel the same old holes inside There's a better life There's a better life If you got pain He's a pain taker if you feel lost, he's a way maker. If you need freedom, a savior, he's a prison shaking savior. If you got chains, he's a chain breaker. We've all searched for the light of day and dead of night. We've all found ourselves one. Fight. We've all run the things we know just ain't right And there's a better life, there's a better life If you got pain, he's a pain taker If you feel lost, he's a way maker If you need If you feel